Thank you, Aaron. My daughter is um, obsessed with uh, calendars, calendars and maps. Um, so we get a constant update of what day it is, what holiday is coming up, everything. And she's been, I don't think she knew the ST, what it stood for on St. Patrick's Day. So until about midday, she was wishing us all happy, happy Patrick's Day, um, which has a very different ring to it. Um, so happy Patrick's Day, everyone. Uh, we are starting a new series uh, in First Peter um, this week. This is the, sorry, I'm trying to get this thing adjusted. This is the first book we will have gone through in this building, um, which was hard to believe. The last book we went through completely would have been Daniel, and that was what we closed out um, Stoneman, or wherever we were. Was it Stoneman? That building. Uh, Yeah, Luther Burbank. So it's been a while since we've gone through a full book, and um, I'm excited to go through 1 Peter. I'm so excited that we're going to start next week. Um, This week we wanted to cover off on who Peter was. Uh, take a look at the author. So, I mean, I guess if you really want to start um, the book this week, we're starting on the first word, and that's where we're stopping. Um, but we're going to talk about Peter. So who is Peter, the author of uh, this letter? Um, he was a Galilean fisherman. And one thing that's hard, actually, taking a step back, of trying to discuss who the, these people are behind the books, who the apostles were, is they don't write about themselves a lot. Um, it's probably a lesson to us in there. Um, most of the things they write are focused on either the people they're writing to or their stories about Jesus. And we have to kind of pick up pieces of who they are in the midst of that. So we don't have like, there's not like a third book of Peter that's just about Peter's life where he sets it all down in order. So we have to piece it together from what we know. And we can tell, we know Peter was a Galilean fisherman. He fished with his brother. Um, he was called by Jesus in a boat, um, and then he had a number of other impressive uh, encounters with Jesus in a boat. He was in the boat when Jesus uh, made the storm stop with a word. Uh, he was in the boat when he saw Jesus walking on the water, and then he himself walked on the water. He was often the mouth, mouthpiece of the apostles. Um, he seemed to be the one who often said what other people were thinking. He didn't hold much back. Sometimes it felt like he was talking purely out of nerves. And he was with Jesus the whole way, or for the, mo- the majority of his ministry. He was one of the first disciples called, and somewhat with Jesus all the way through the cross, and then again after the cross. He was the apostle that got up and gave this sermon at Pentecost, where the church kind of kicked off in earnest. And then he was a pillar of the early church. Uh, he was, he is the main character of the first 10 or so chapters of Acts, it feels like. You follow him as Peter encounters these things, as Peter's told to stop preaching, as Peter preaches all the same. Peter's there when Ananias and Sapphira uh, happen. Uh, Peter's the one who, to whom God gives the revelation to go to Cornelius when the church is opened up to the Gentiles. And then he kind of recedes into the background of the biblical uh, narrative. It's not because we get, and Paul takes over. 
Um, and I don't think that's not because Peter became less important to the church at that time, so much as Paul was a more natural vehicle for the second half of Acts. He was Luke, the author's traveling partner, and he was also, this, the book of Acts is about how the gospel goes forth in Jerusalem when Peter gives the sermon at Pentecost to Samaria and then on into the outermost parts of the world as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, best typifies during that time. Peter remains an important person during this story. We know this now in pieces from more where Paul interacts with him. Paul refers to him as a pillar of the church when he meets him. He tells of his run-in with Peter at one point where they had a disagreement. And we know Peter lands eventually in Rome where tradition would have him killed. This epistle, the first epistle of Peter, was written in Rome, uh, most likely. It has a reference to Babylon, which was a less than friendly code word for Rome. Um, it was likely written in the early 60s. This would have been before the persecutions under Nero, and the reason I say likely is it's not 100% sure, but the book is written to people living under persecution, and it seems unlikely that Peter would not have mentioned the persecutions they were endure, enduring when he wrote to somebody else to encourage them in persecutions. So we can probably date it to the early 60s. And that's what it's about. It's about living a Christian life under pressure. Um, specifically, these people are living life under a, a level of persecution. Again, the persecutions of Nero have not kicked up um, when they started just lighting Christians on fire. But there is a level of persecution that's already under, um, being experienced by them. We are not a persecuted uh, people. We don't live as part of the persecuted church, but we do live under a pressure. Um, it's changed a lot since I was growing up. I remember there was part of me that wished I was more of a Christian growing up in the South because I would have fit in more. So then I came to Los Angeles and became a Christian. Um, <laughs> Well done. It's all about timing, that or just being a contrarian. Um, but the, yeah. So it, we do live under pressure. Um, our Christian confession is not going to kick open doors at the office for us. Um, and when you think about the general trajectory, we are raising children if we're raising them in the faith for potentially a more challenging path. There was a survey done two years ago in the UK where 23% of the religious parents were not raising their children in the faith because it would make them outcasts. Essentially, they were going to be sidelined, so they were choosing to not pass on their faith to their children. So we live under pressure. and. There's something to be learned from people who are undergoing something harder than you. When Becca was pregnant with um, whatever my first child's name was, <laughs> Rosaria, um, 
been a week. When she was pregnant with Rosaria, Becca does not have simple pregnancies, which is why we have three children. And while she was in the midst of it, she took to watching survival shows. She has not watched survival shows before. She did not watch them after, but I would regularly sit down to watch her watching a video of some guy trekking through the desert, drinking his own urine out of a snakeskin. <laughs> Why? Because it made her feel better. So, now we're not reading this book so that we can feel a little better and go, well, at least it's not that bad. We're reading it because the things that Peter tells them can be applied to us. And he writes this primarily as an encouragement to them. He looks at the situation they're, they're in and encourages them to live in a certain way. And we too can hear that same encourage written into a harder circumstance and feel encouraged to live the same way. So what is the message he is giving to these people? As he, because he lays a theological foundation, what theological foundation is he laying before he encourages them to live specific ways? Because like many letters of the, the um, New Testament, it has this very kind of theological upfront, and then it goes into a lot of specifics in the back half. And upfront, he focuses in primarily on questions of identity, who God is, who Christ is, and who they are. This is a book that is largely about identity. And that's really what I want to look at today as we consider more of who Peter was, is what we can say about identity, because this is a hefty word in our culture. We have identity crises, we have identity politics, we have identity theft. Identity is something that sits heavy in our minds. The usage of the word identity in print in English has gone up 11-fold since 1940. It is a concept that is just taking off in terms of the way we use it. And when you have a word that encompasses so much of our regular imagination, you have to be careful with how you in, what you import of that meaning into the Bible. Like this is true of like freedom. Um, freedom in our popular imagination, especially our popular advertised imagination, is a removal of constraints. But if you take that conception of freedom and import it into the Bible and read the text of the Bible, and when you get to freedom, what you hear is a removal of constraints. The text makes no sense. Because you have removal of constraints, and then you're told to do something that you need to do. But the concept that the Bible is working for freedom is not a removal of constraints, but it's removal of the things that prevent you from being what you're supposed to be of being the person you're meant to be, of being how you were created. That's the freedom that it brings you into. So you need to go back and rework what freedom is in order to understand freedom here. And you need to do that in a way that you don't need to do with words that are primarily religious in their context. I don't need to, I wouldn't worry about you guys importing some meaning you picked up somewhere else about propitiation. I don't think any of you have used that this week in any other context. Um, even grace, unless you're speaking of like Audrey Hepburn, you just don't really bring grace into your regular context. It has a certain meaning which we know is very different from the meaning that we generally use it when we're speaking in the biblical terms. So there's less of a danger here. When you get to things like freedom or identity, you have to be clear as to what you're talking about or else you can distort the message. 
So as we think about what the Christian identity is over the coming weeks, we need to be clear to some to kind of lay the groundwork of what identity is. Now, as I said, the word identity doesn't actually, unless you have the New Living Translation, oddly, it doesn't show up in your Bible, um, in any of the common um, translations. But the concept's there, because it's a question of who we are. And the Bible is very concerned with who we are. The, we are introduced to humanity, not with a person initially, but with a description of who these people are. These are people who are made male and female in God's image with this purpose. It starts and introduces us with a concept of who we are. When we're introduced to Eve, the first thing that gets said to her, what Adam, what Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's identifying who this person is as being of the same type of person as him. So we keep doing this as you move through. God renames people. He continually tells people who they are. There's an obsession with this idea of who we are. And it continues through the whole text. Calvin starts his institutes with the, this is the opening sentence our wisdom insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves who is God and who are we and these two concepts are tightly interwoven that's the, new, the Old Testament weaves them back and forth who God is who we are Calvin continues, but these are connect, as, the, as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. It's hard to know ourselves without knowing who God is. It's hard to know God without knowing who we are. So we come with this idea of needing to understand who we are and who God is as we approach this book, this question of identity. So the question is, what can we learn from Peter about identity, from the life of Peter? Obviously, hopefully, over the next few weeks in the book, we'll learn something. But from the life of Peter, what can we learn? And that's where I was running into walls. Um, I told Aaron before this, which is probably why he prayed for me, this sermon has been tough to write. I know what I want to say, but I have had trouble putting it into any sort of structured form. And you can see, because I come up with, what can we learn about Peter from identity? Well, his name wasn't Peter initially, so there's one thing. He was born Simon. He's the son of John, Simon Barjona, as Peter, uh, so as Jesus refers to him at some point. Um, now, name changes in the Bible are not unusual. Um, God uses them to signify something about people. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Um, and Peter is given his name by Jesus. So it's not like he just decided one day he was Peter, but it's Jesus who starts referring to this man as Peter. And the question is when and why. He refers to him as Peter through most of his relationship with him. When, they are when he meets Peter in the opening section of John, he refers to him as Peter there. 
but it isn't until much later in the story that we find out why. And that takes place at a pivotal time in Jesus's ministry. Jesus's ministry basically has two halves to it. He starts and ministers in Galilee for a while, and then he moves at one point and changes his direction and goes towards Jerusalem and his death. The pivotal moment between his ministry in Galilee and heading towards Jerusalem is the confession that he is the Messiah. At that point, he turns and heads towards Jerusalem and his death. This is also the moment where we find out why Peter is called Peter. So this is found in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It's really weird to have light. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's Jesus referring to himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, our protagonist here, replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, from you, Lord. this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we have two elements here. We have a question of Jesus' identity, where Peter proclaims, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the promised one who will come to deliver Israel and establish it back to its glory. And then we have Peter beginning to rebuke Jesus. I love that he doesn't rebuke Jesus. He begins to rebuke Jesus. He doesn't even get the full rebuke out or get that right. He begins to rebuke Jesus and gets cut off. So in short, we get Peter getting it right and then Peter getting it very, very wrong. But we see three things about identity in this passage. We see that identities are given. We see that identities come with a certain wholeness to them. And we see that identities set a path. Now, first, they are given. It's always awkward, and I've had friends who've done this, um, who've tried to give themselves a nickname. Um, it never works. Because um, it feels like someone is trying to craft an identity. They're trying to say, I am this sort of person who's this sort of thing. And you look at them, and you're like, no, that's not your name. I'm never going to call you that. But we all still craft identities all the time. 
I mean, we have celebrities who are consistently reinventing themselves, who have one identity, who disappear from the public eye for a little while and then come back as a modified version of themselves. It's kind of like giving yourself a nickname. It's really harder to pull off in a smaller circle. Um, and we see this crafting around us all the time. It's easy to see, for those of us who are older, in kids because we're grumpy. But we see it in social media and the way people can spend trying to craft a persona online. The posing for photos, the carefully selected ones, the filters. I have Instagram, not railing against it. I don't think my parents would know what my kids look like if I didn't have it. But there is a certain degree of crafting that goes on. And that's not to say like that's something new now. I mean, I would not have read the same books I read as a teenager if a Kindle hid what book they were. Nobody takes being in nothingness to the library and sits there reading it at 17, somehow hoping to pick up girls. But again, <laughs> never worked, oddly. Um, but we have this element that always exists of us of trying to craft who we are. And it's, it, it takes on a number of ways, and it's not something that we're um, not vulnerable to as adults. Our identities are very much in flux. The cases, the incidences of adultery, the likelihood of adultery goes up when someone goes on, on the road because there's some element of what they're using to craft their identity where they can go somewhere else and be a different person. It's like as soon as a little bit breaks, you can start to craft an entirely different persona. You can, but even beyond that, incidences of adultery go up when somebody's work hours change. That much is enough of a change where identities are that much in flux and people start trying to craft a new structure on who they are. We are consistently trying to craft an identity that changes. I mean, we kind of all feel like, I mean, at least I do, I used, to, we had a dog when I was growing up and it was my job to give her showers. And the funniest thing about, I don't know if all dogs do this, but our dog did is when you wash a dog and you let it out of the shower, the dog is on cloud nine for about five minutes. Ours would just run around like mad, full speed, tearing through the house, just so excited to be clean. But we can, this seems silly, but we kind of feel the same way. It's like you get a new haircut, which I did this week, Joe, thank you. And you're like, I feel like a slightly different person now. I got a new outfit, I feel more capable. We have this element where we're consistently crafting and trying to perform an identity. We're all living to some degree under Sartre's maxim that we are our choices. There's nothing that's given to us and we are consistently crafting at every moment the identity that we have. We are performing it. Which can leave us fraught with anxiety. Because anything you created is imperfect and will be discovered. You will at some point be found out for the fact that the identity you think is so perfectly manufactured has cracks in it. And I guarantee you, your friends know. And anything that you created is also fragile and can fall apart. You can have this identity that's built up to this particular thing and then you lose your job and what was once a solid person 
crumbles. But in this passage, who gives Jesus the identity of the Messiah? Not Peter. Peter says he is the Messiah. But Jesus is given the title of Messiah. It's not his title you just take on yourself. He's given the title by God. God has set Jesus as the Messiah. And who gives Peter the title Peter? Jesus. And there's an identity to this. Um, and we actually need to know a little bit of Greek to get the joke. It's actually not a funny joke, but to get the actual wordplay here. Um, Peter is Petros in Greek, and rock is Petra. So what Jesus is basically saying is you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. Now this is a passage that um, is just a little bit contentious in the actual meaning. Um, Roman Catholicism founds part of their belief that the Pope is who he is on this passage because he's the line of Peter, and Peter's the rock in which the church is built. Um, I have no illusions that I'm going to settle a 500-year-old church dispute in the next 10 minutes, so we're just going to skip past that. Um, but just note that there is a title that's being given here to Peter. Jesus is saying something about him. And Peter does, without going full Roman Catholic on it, he does play something of a rock steadying presence to the church. Him and this confession, which cannot be separated from each other in this instance, play a foundational aspect in the church. The one who is the rock is the one who does get up and give the first sermon. He's the one who leads and makes a lot of the decisions in the early church. And he, this, but this is given, as is the title of Messiah, prior to either party actually playing out the role they've been given. Now, Jesus, I'll tread lightly here. Jesus is the Messiah, but he has not yet done the Messiah thing. He's doing it. He's announcing the kingdom in word and deed. But if he was to stop right here, he has not fulfilled the role of the Messiah. Yet he is the Messiah. That role has been, that identity has been given to him. Similarly, Peter, the rock, is anything but a rock for a while. The first thing he does is get rebuked. He, this steady rock who a person can depend on when Jesus is in his moment of need, denies him three times. But he's been given an identity prior to him acting it out in any particular way. Second, that identities have a certain wholeness to them. They carry a weight. I mean, Peter is the rock. He carries a burden of the leadership of the church. And he wrestles with it um, for, all of his li- for pretty much all of his life. Now, he has the run in Damascus with Paul, where having been the apostle who gets the revelation that brings the Gentiles in, he then won't eat with them and gets called out on it. And that name, Peter, the rock, had to hang like a millstone around his neck the night he denies Christ. You can see Christ has said, I'm going to my death, and Peter's like, I am with you. 
I will be there till the end. I will never deny you. And he seems sincere about it. He tried to chop a guy's ear off. Oh, he did chop a guy's ear off. <laughs> I imagine he was trying to do more, but he successfully chopped a guy's ear off. Yeah. <laughs> um, this rock who had this then hears the, cro the rooster crow twice after he's denied Jesus uh, three times. So there's a weight to this identity. Because they have something that comes with them. You can't just cast off the part you don't like when you have an identity. Especially if you're not performing your identity and you are someone, you can't simply cast off all the parts you don't like. You can even see this more so in Jesus' identity as the Messiah. I mean, know how he phrases it. He doesn't say, from this time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he wanted to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. His identity as the Messiah carries with it things he, I imagine he wanted and things that were less than desirable, but which he endured. We tend to live in a world with a la carte identities, where we pick and choose from the things that we have before us. I am Brian, the son of Clarice and Joseph, born in Alabama, grew up in the South. Um, I went to USC, get my social security number and just get the whole scammer thing out of the way now. But all these things that happen are things I bring to me. But then we look at them and pick and choose the elements that we want. I'm a southerner, but not like that. I will pick this part, this part, and this part. I like the biscuits. <laughs> I like gravy. I like food. But I'm not these other aspects of what this uh, is. I went to USC, but I'm not that sort of person. I'm a Christian, but not a cool Christian. We tend to want to choose the certain elements that we are. And part of this is that we don't like being told. I mean, you can say this is, you can imagine how this runs when you get to the spot where if someone has an identity and you tell them what that means about them, if you look at some element of them, if you looked at me and said, you're from Alabama, if I looked at Gerald and said, you're Korean, therefore you must be like this, we bristle against this with good reason, but we bristle against it. And, but we've gone the full way where we just basically pick and choose. My background can become one thing element that I pull out of the back and set down, and this is the thing I'm keeping from my past, and the entire rest of it gets pushed aside. And this also means we bristle when we meet identities that don't go well with picking and choosing. Like I can be the working professional, but not that sort of working professional and keep these various aspects out. When you're a parent, it's like this entire whole identity drops in your lap and it's really hard to pick and choose certain elements and cast off the stuff that sucks without killing your child. So we buckle against these things. But for Jesus, picking and choosing what it meant to be the Messiah was the way of Satan. 
And we make a utter hash out of our Christian identity if we come towards it as something that we can a la carte, pick and choose the elements that we like and cast off the other portions. I mean, the pinnacle verse of identity, the spot where New Living Translation actually uses the word in 1 Peter is in chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, make a, we can't look at this and go, I really dig the mercy part. I'm okay with being a chosen race. Holy is a little bit of a stretch. And I don't want to, I've got things to do, so I'm not going to do the whole proclaiming his excellencies. It's not how we can go at these passages. We have an identity that we are supposed to understand what it is with the weight and the fullness of it and then live into that identity. We have identities that have a wholeness to them. And that goes into the third point that they come with a path. Part of the reason we want to push against this wholeness of identities is that we want to be able, if we can't, sorry, we're stuck on a trajectory. So we want to cast out the portions that would lock us in. Jesus is not simply saying that the Messiah must be this or that, that he must be a really nice guy and very holy and wise. It's not simply a static now identity. It is he must be, be those things, but he must go and do this. That identity sets him on a path. Here again, our version, our view of identity largely is it's the story that got us to where we are now from which we can remix and build where we want to go into the future. It's source material. It's not a storyline. Like, I'm not going to say that I can't do something because it would be unfitting of me as the son of Joe. You guys would wonder which century I fell out of. And I can guarantee you that if you're in a movie and some authority figure tells someone our people don't do that, we all know what the pivotal decision point in the movie is going to be with like 90% accuracy. And if it's animated, it's 100% accurate. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the Disney movie, even just a short, where the parent tells the child, our people don't go to the magic rock because it's dangerous. And the kid tries it and dies just once. Parenting's tough. Um, and there's good reason for this. I mean, honestly, there's reasons. Uh, there's probably portions of what I've said where you're like, yeah, but that's the way it should be. I mean, we are a religion of conversion. We, believe, we don't believe anyone is stuck in a trajectory. No one's identity is set such that that's it for good. Our entire belief is like, 
you can, I mean, you can be on the road to going to kill Christians and change course and become the great apostle to the Gentiles. So we believe in our understanding of identity in this culture is somewhat shaped by this belief and heritage. We believe that identity is something that can change, and it can change at any moment. The spot where it breaks down is it isn't simply that it's a constant recreation or a it's weaving with no reference to the background. We have identities that we make a break in with repentance and go somewhere else, and we don't simply go from this path to wherever. Similarly, the Israelites were not saved from the house of slavery to go do whatever they wanted. They were saved from the house of slavery and then given Leviticus. This is one path to another. We are following a path, and then we can choose a different path. And oftentimes, yes, those testaments of those restrictions on our identity, those things that would hold us back when somebody says, you can't do something because you're that type of person, oftentimes those are simply founded in bigotry. And we also push against that sin. We just have to be careful if we take the entire thing and destroy a concept of an identity that can be given, that has a wholeness to it, and that does set us in a path because the Christian identity is all three. It's something that is given to us by God. It's something that has a firm wholeness to it where we don't get to pick and choose the parts that we like, and it's something that sets us on a path for life. And what kind of path is that? Jesus had the path of going to Jerusalem to be arrested and abused and killed, and then raised on the third day, but arrested, abused, and killed. What path do we have? He tells us, because right after he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, another identity, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He continues in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So that's a trajectory. It's a bit of a rough one. Um, Taking up your cross and denying yourself. And to be clear, um, contrary to its common use, taking up your cross is not enduring whatever persistent struggle you might have. Um, your children are not your cross. Your job is not your cross. An illness is not your cross. This has a particular frame of reference. All those things are things to be endured sometimes, just to be clear. But this has a particular reference point. This is taking up your cross 
as the cross of discipleship and following Jesus. This is taking up a cross and denying yourself. This is accepting the death of yourself to follow Jesus. Sometimes it ends up being a literal death. Peter famously was martyred, um, according to the stories, crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way as Jesus. But for most of us, it's not, thankfully. <laughs> but we still are called to take up a cross and deny ourselves. We're still called to go and die in a certain sense. We lay down one identity so that we might wholly take up another one. And that doesn't mean that there aren't elements of us that persist through it because the same God who made you is the same one giving you this identity. But we set this down. We die. That's why you can say it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We come and we set down an identity to take up a whole identity. <clears throat> to receive back an identity from him. And far be it, we don't lose in that transaction. Remember Jesus is kind of walking in parallel with Jesus, is go, Jesus himself going to his death, which is something we know from Hebrews he did for the joy set before him. Similarly, we do this for joy. As we lay down this identity and the anxiety of creating it and constantly trying to shape it and simply receive an identity from Christ, we find freedom and peace from that anxiety. We can stop worrying that we're consistently going to be found out because the one who gave us the identity knows all the cracks in the story that we've made and he loves us all the same. We can stop wandering and take a journey that's set before us. We can walk in the good works he has made for us. We have to have this understanding as we come to a book that's going to talk about identity so that we don't come to it and try and pick and choose. If we come to 1 Peter and it's talk about Christian identity and what, how we're called to live and say, I want this element of it and not that element of it. This part's going to make me weird, so cast it outside. I really like this piece, so we'll put it up in the mantle as opposed to down lower and try and rearrange it that way. We might find an element of happiness in that. We might find momentary relief from some of the struggles we are, but we will not be enabled to live the life that we're being called to live. Because a lot of the things God calls us to only makes sense in the context of the identity he's given us. The whole identity that he's given us.
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Christ, that is true of every single one of you. Every single word of that. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have called us, that you know us by name. Lord, I thank you that this begins foundationally with the question of who you are. For Lord, outside of that, how could we trust to give ourselves fully to you? But we know you to be kind. We know you to be generous. We know you to be merciful and loving. Lord, I pray that that revelation of yourself would stand firm in front of us. Know that we would see the beauty of Christ and we would want to receive everything he has for us from his hands. Know that we would set aside anything that would prohibit that. Know that your grace would be with us in those struggles. That we would find peace and joy and delight in walking the paths you've set for us. Lord, teach us who we are. And give us hearts that respond with joy to that message. We pray this in your son's name.